Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Our guest today is Robert Sawyer. Robert is a science fiction author and is both a Hugo and a Nebula winner. He is the author of 23 books, which many of which explore themes that we talk about frequently. Robert, welcome to the show. Hello. So tell me a little bit about your past and how you got into science fiction and how you choose the themes that you write about. Well, I think apropos of uh, this uh, particular podcast, the most salient thing to mention is that when I was eight years old, 2001 A Space Odyssey was in theaters, and my father took me to see that film. I happened to have been born in 1960, so the math was easy. I was obviously eight in 68, but I would be 41 in 2001, and my dad, when he took me to see the film, was already older than that. Uh, which meant that before I was my dad's age, talking computers, intelligent machines would be a part of my life. This was promised. It was in the title, 2001. And that really caught my imagination. I had already been exposed to science fiction through Star Trek, which obviously premiered two years earlier, 66, but I was a little young to really absorb it. Heck, I may be a little young right now at 57 to really absorb all that's in 2001, A Space Odyssey. But it was definitely... Uh, the visual world of um, science fiction as opposed to the books. I came to them later. But again, apropos of this podcast, the first um, real science fiction books I read, my dad packed me off to summer camp and he got me two. One was just a, a kind of a space adventure and the other was a collection of Isaac Asimov's robot stories. Actually, the second one, The Rest of the Robots, as it was titled in Britain, and I didn't understand that title at all. I thought it was about exhausted mechanical men having a nap, the rest of the robots, because I didn't know there was an earlier volume when I first read it. But right from the very beginning, one of the things that fascinated me most was artificial intelligence. And my first novel, Golden Fleece, is very much my response to 2001 after having molded over from the time I was eight years old to my first novel came out. Uh, I started writing when I was 28, came out when I was 30. Uh, so 20 years of mulling over, well, what was the psychology behind an artificial intelligence, Hal actually deciding to commit murder? So psychology, psychology of non-human beings, uh, whether it's aliens or AIs, and uh, certainly the whole theme of artificial intelligence has been right core in my work from the very beginning. And 2001 was definitely what sparked that. It, although many of your books are set in Canada, they are not all like in the same fictional universe, correct? That's right. And I actually think, you know, I mentioned Isaac Asimov as one of my first exposures to science fiction. Of course, still a, a man I enormously admired, was lucky enough to meet him during his lifetime. But I think it was a fool's errand that he spent a great deal of his creative energies near the later part of his life trying to uh, fuse his foundation universe with his robot universe and come up with this master plan. I think, A, it's just ridiculous. It constrains you as a writer. And B, it takes away the power of science fiction. Science fiction is a test bed for new ideas. It's not about trying to predict the future. It's about predicting a smorgasbord of possible futures. And if you get constrained into every work I did has to be coherent and consistent with something I did 10, 20, 30, 40, in Asimov's case, 50 and 60 years in my past, that's ridiculous. You're not expanding the range of possibilities you're exploring. You're narrowing down instead of opening up. So yeah, I, I have a trilogy about artificial intelligence, Wake, Watch, and Wonder. I have two other trilogies that are on different topics, but uh, of my 23 novels, the bulk of them are standalone and in no way uh, are meant to be thought of as being in a coherent same universe. Each one is a fresh, that phrase I like, fresh test bed for a new idea. So what, what does, uh, that's, that's Robert Sawyer, the author. 
What do you, Robert Sawyer, the person, think the future is going to be like? I am known both. I, I, I don't think there's a distinction in terms of my outlook. I'm an optimist. I'm known as an optimistic person, a techno-optimist, in that I do think, despite uh, all the uh, uh, obvious downsides of technology, uh, human-caused global climate change didn't happen because of cow farts. It happened because of coal-burning machines and so forth. Uh, you know, uh, despite that, I'm optimistic, very optimistic, generally as a person. Uh, and certainly most of my fiction, although my most recent book, my 23rd Quantum Night, is almost a deliberate step back because there have been those who had said, I'm almost Pollyanna-ish uh, in my optimism. Uh, some would even said possibly even na naive. And I don't think I am. I think I rigorously interrogate the ideas uh, in my fiction and also in politics and day-to-day -day life. And, uh, you know, I'm a skeptic by nature. Uh, I'm not easily uh, swayed to think, oh, somebody solved all our problems. But nonetheless, the arrow of progress through both my personal history and the history of the planet seems definitely to be pointing in a positive direction. I'm an optimist as well, and the, the kinds of arguments I get against that viewpoint, the, the first one invariably is, did you not read the paper this morning? Yeah. And, and people look around them and they see that technology increases our ability to destroy faster than it can create, than it increases our ability to create, that uh, asymmetry uh, is on the rise, meaning fewer and fewer people can can cause more and more havoc, that um, the magnitude of the kinds of things that can happen due to technology, like uh, genetically engineered superbugs and whatnot, uh, are both accessible and, and real. And, and when people give you a series of that sort of view, what do you say? How do you maintain well, it, you know, optimism? It's funny you should say that I had to present those views just yesterday. I happened to be involved with developing a TV show here in Canada. I'm the head writer and I was having a production meeting and uh, the producer was actually saying, well, you know, I don't think that there's any way that we have to really worry about, uh, you know, the planet being destroyed by a rogue operator. And I said, no, 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 man, you have no idea uh, the amount of destructive power that the arrow of history is clearly showing is devolving down into smaller and smaller hands. Uh, you know, a thousand years ago, the best one person could do is probably kill one or two other people. A hundred years ago, they could kill you know several people. Once we had machine guns, they could kill a whole bunch of people in a shopping mall. Then we found uh, atomic uh, bombs and so forth. It was only nations we had to worry about, big nations. And we saw clearly in the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it comes to big essentially responsible nations, the USSR and the United States, uh, responsible to their populations and also to their role on the world stage, they weren't going to do it. They came so close, Khrushchev and, uh, and Kennedy, and backed away. Okay, we don't have to worry about that. Well, now rogue states, much smaller states like North Korea, are pursuing atomic weapons. And before you know it, it's going to be uh, terrorist groups like the Taliban that will have atomic weapons. And it's actually a terrifying thought. Uh, if there's a second theme that permeates my writing, besides my interest in artificial intelligence, it's my interest in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And one of the big conundrums uh, my friends who work at the SETI Institute, Seth Shostak and others, of course, are also optimists. They honestly think in the defiance of any evidence whatsoever uh, that the universe actually is teeming with aliens and they will respond uh, to uh, or, or at least be sending out um, proactively and altruistically messages for others to pick up. And uh, what, uh, Enrico Fermi asked actually way back during the days of the Manhattan Project, ironically, well, if the universe is supposed to be teeming with aliens, where are they? And the most likely response, uh, given the plethora of exoplanets, the banality of the biology of life and so forth, is, well, they probably emerge at a steady pace uh, in extraterrestrial civilizations. And then, you know, they reach a point where they develop atomic weapons. 50 years later, they invent radio. That's the range for us. Or 50 years earlier, 19... Uh, 45 for atomic weapons, 1895 for radio. There's half a century during which they can broadcast before they have the ability to destroy themselves. Do they survive 500 years, 5,000 years, 
you know, 500,000 years. Uh, all of that is a blink of an eye in terms of the 14 billion year age of the universe, the chances of any two extant civilizations that haven't yet destroyed themselves through their own technology existing simultaneously, whatever that means in a relativistic universe, uh, becomes almost nil. That's a very good possible answer to Fermi and bodes not well at all for our technological future. Sagan said something like that. He said that uh, his guess was civilizations had 100 years after they uh, got radio to either destroy themselves or overcome that tendency and go on to live on a time scale of billions of years. Right. And, you know, when you talk about round numbers, and of course, based on our particular orbit, the year is the orbital uh, duration of the Earth. Um, yeah, he's probably right. It's on the right order of magnitude. Uh, clearly, we didn't solve the problem by 1995, uh, you know, uh, but by 2095, which is the same order of magnitude, a century plus or minus, I think he's right. If we don't solve the problem by 2095, the bicentennial of radio, we're doomed. We, we, we have to deal with it because it is within that range of time, uh, a century or two after you develop radio, that you either have to find a way to make sure you're never going to destroy yourself or you're destroyed. So on that sense, he's right. And then it, will we survive for billions? Will we survive for billions is an awfully long time, but hundreds of millions, right? Eh, you know, we're quibbling about an order of magnitude at the high end there. But basically, yes, I believe uh, in round numbers and proximate orders of magnitude, he's absolutely right. The window is very small to avoid uh, the existential threats that come with uh, radio leads to, uh, you know, uh, the, the line through the engineering and the physics from radio, from understanding how radio waves work and so forth, leads directly to atomic power, leads directly to atomic weapons, blah, 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 and leads conceivably directly to the destruction of a planet. The uh, artificial intelligence pioneer, Marvin Minsky, said, quote, lately I've been inspired by ideas from Robert Sawyer. What was he talking about? And what ideas in particular do you think? Well, uh, Marvin is a wonderful guy. And after he wrote that, I had the lovely opportunity to meet him. Um, and uh, he was uh, actually, ironically, my most significant work about artificial intelligence, Wake, Watch, and Wonder, uh, came out after Marvin uh, said that. I went to visit Marvin. Uh, he was now Professor Emeritus by the time I went to visit him at the AI lab at MIT when I was researching that trilogy. So he was talking uh, mostly about my book, MindScan, which was about uh, whether or not we would eventually be able to um, uh, copy and duplicate human consciousness or a good simulacrum thereof in an artificial substrate. And he was certainly intrigued by my work, which was what a flattering thing. I mean, oh my God, you know, Minsky is one of those names uh, science fiction writers conjure with. You named another, uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, these are the people who we voraciously read, science fiction writers, science fiction fans. And to note, uh, to know that, uh, you know, it turned around and they were inspired to some degree, that there was a reciprocity, that they were inspired by what we science fiction writers were doing, uh, is in general a wonderful concept. And the specificity of that, that Marvin Minsky had read and been uh, uh, excited and energized intellectually by things I was writing, was you know, pretty much the biggest compliment I've ever had in my life. What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence? Do you think we're going to build an AGI and win and will it Will it, will it be good for us and, and all of that? What's your, what's your view on that? So you use the word build, which is a proactive uh, verb. And honestly, I don't think, well, first, of course, we have a muddying of terms. We all knew uh, what artificial intelligence meant in the 1960s. It meant HAL 9000. Uh, or in the 1980s, it meant data on Star Trek The Next Generation. It meant, as HAL said, uh, any self-aware entity could ever hope to be, right? It meant self-awareness. We meant by artificial intelligence, not, we, we weren't talking about intelligence in terms of the ability, excuse me, I'm going to cough, <clears throat> uh, uh, in terms of the ability to really rapidly play chess, although that is something 
that HAL did in 2001, A Space Odyssey. We weren't talking about the ability to recognize faces, although that is something HAL did, in fact. Uh, in the film, he manages to recognize specific faces based on an amateur sketch artist's sketch, right? Uh, oh, that's, that's Dr. Hunter, isn't it? In a, um, in a sketch that uh, one of the astronauts has done. We didn't mean that. We didn't mean any of these algorithmic things. We meant uh, the other part of Hal's name, the heuristic part of Hal, heuristically programmed algorithmic computer, H-A-L, Hal. We meant something even beyond that, we meant consciousness self-awareness. And that term has disappeared. Uh, when you ask an AI guy, somebody pounding away at a keyboard in Lisp, uh, when is it going to say, Kagito ergo sum? He looks at you like you're a moron. So we've dulled the term. And I don't think anybody anywhere has come even remotely close to simulating or generating self-awareness in a computer. Uh, Gary Kasparov was rightly miffed and possibly humiliated uh, when he was beaten at the thing he devoted his life to, Grandmaster Level Chess, by Deep Blue. Deep Blue did not even know that it was playing chess, right? Uh, Watson had no idea that it was playing Jeopardy. It had no inner life, no inner satisfaction that it had beat Ken Jennings, the best human player, at this game. It just crunched numbers the way my old Texas Instrument 35 calculator from the 1970s crunched numbers. So in that sense, I don't think we've made any progress at all. Does that mean I don't think AI is just around the corner? Not at all. I think it actually is. But I think it's going to be an emergent property from sufficiently complex systems. The existent proof of that is our own consciousness which clear, and self-awareness, which clearly emerged from no design, there's no teleology to evolution, no divine intervention, if that's your worldview, and I don't mean you personally as we talk here, but the listener, well, we have nothing in common to base a conversation around this about. It emerged because at some point there was sufficient synaptic complexity with our, within our brains and sim, uh, sufficient interpersonal complexity within our social structures to require self-reflection. And I suspect, in fact, I pause it in Wake, Watch, and Wonder that we will get that eventually from the most complex thing we've ever built, which is the interconnectivity of the internet. So many synapse analogs in links and uh, links that are both hyperlinks and links that are physical cable or fiber optic uh, or microwave links that at some point the same thing will happen, that intelligence and consciousness, true consciousness, self-awareness are an emergent property of sufficient complexity. Let's talk about that for a minute. There are two kinds of emergence. There's um, what's known as as weak emergence, which is, hey, I did this thing and something came out of it. And man, I wasn't expecting that to happen. So like you might study hydrogen and you might study oxygen and then you put them together and there's water and you're like, whoa. And, and the water is wet, right? Which you could not right. possibly uh, have, perceive have that. Guessed. There's nothing in the chemistry of hydrogen or oxygen that would make the, the quality of a human perceiving it as being wet apparent in that. It's an emergent property. Absolutely. Right. And, but, but upon reflection, you can say, okay, I see how that happened, and you can mm-hmm. figure it out. And then there's strong emergence, which many people say doesn't exist. And if it does exist, there may only be one example of it, which is consciousness itself. And strong emergence says, no, you, you did all this stuff. Um, let's take a, a human. A human's you know, you're made of a trillion cells that don't know you, you know, don't know you or anything. None of those cells has a sense of humor, and yet you have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And so a strong emergent would be something that you can look at what comes out of it, and it can't actually be derived from the ingredients. So right. what and- do you think <clears throat> consciousness is, then? Is it a weak emergent? So I'm lucky enough to be good friends with Stuart Hameroff and an acquaintance, a friendly acquaintance uh, with um, uh, Hameroff's partner, uh, Roger Penrose, who is a physicist, of course, who collaborates with Stephen Hawking on black holes. And they both think that consciousness is a strong emergent property, uh, that, uh, uh, that it's not something that in retrospect, we in fact, at least in terms of classical physics, can sort of, okay, I get how it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Da, da, da. You know, the way we do about water and wetness, right? Uh, and uh, I'm quite a proponent 
of their um, uh, orchestrated objective reduction uh, model or OR of uh, consciousness and Penrose's position first put forward in, uh, of course, um, the Emperor's New Mind and later uh, after he'd actually met uh, Hammeroff, uh, expounded upon at more length in Shadows of the Mind, so 20-year-old ideas now, that human consciousness must be quantum mechanical in nature. And I freely admit that a lot of the mathematics uh, that uh, Hammeroff and Penrose argue is over my uh, head. But the fundamental notion that the system itself uh, transcends um, uh, the ability of classical mathematics and classical physics to fully describe it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, they, they have uh, some fairly recondite arguments for why that would be the case. Uh, the most uh, compelling seems to come from Gordel's incompleteness theorem, uh, that there simply is no way you can actually, in classical physics and classical mathematics, uh, derive a system that will be self-reflective. Um, but from quantum physics and superposition, uh, perhaps uh, you actually can come up with an explanation for consciousness. Now, that said, I say a proponent. My job as a science fiction writer is not to pick the most likely explanation for any given phenomenon that I turn my octorial gaze on. Rather, it is to pick the most entertaining or most provocative or most intriguing one that can't easily be gainsayed by what we already know. So is consciousness, in that sense, an emergent quantum mechanical property? That's a fascinating question. We can't easily gainsay it because we don't know. We certainly don't have a classical model that gives rise to that, uh, that non-strong, that, that trivial emergence that we talked about in terms of hydrogen and oxygen. We don't have any classical model that actually gives rise to an inner life. We have people who want to, you know, uh, the famous uh, book Consciousness Explained, uh, Dennett, which many of its critics would say is consciousness explained away. We have the astonishing hypothesis of um, uh, uh, Crick, uh, which is really, uh, uh, you know, again, explaining away uh, why, you know, you think you have consciousness in a sophisticated inner life. Well, yeah, don't really. That clearly flies as much in, in the face of our own personal experience as somebody saying, you know, cogito ergo sum, nah, you're actually not thinking, you're not self-aware. I can't buy that. So in that sense, I do think consciousness is emergent, but it's not necessarily emergent from classical physics and therefore not necessarily emergent on any platform that anybody is building at Google at the moment. Penrose concluded in the end that you cannot build a conscious computer. Would you, would you go all that far? Or do you have an opinion on that? <clears throat> I, uh, you cannot build a conscious classical computer. Absolutely. I think Penrose is probably right. Given the amount of effort we've been trying and that Moore's law gives us a boost to our effort every 18 months or whatever figure you want to plug into it these days. Um, and we haven't attained it yet. Uh, I think he's probably right. A quantum computer is a whole different kettle of fish. Um, I was lucky enough to visit D-Wave Computing on my last book tour a year ago, uh, where it was very gratifying. I mean, I, you mentioned the, um, I, don't, I don't want to be self-indulgent here, but you mentioned the lovely thing Marvin Minsky said. When I went to D-Wave, which is the only commercial sh uh, company shipping quantum computers, Google has bought from them, NASA has bought from them. Uh, and when I went, they asked me to come and give a talk. I said, well, that's lovely. How come? And my host said, everybody at D-Wave reads Robert J. Sawyer. Oh, my God. Wow. What a, what a great compliment. But because I'm a proponent, and they're certainly intrigued by the notion that uh, quantum physics may be what underlies the self-reflective ability, which is what we define consciousness as, uh, I do think that, that if there is going to be a, a computer, an AI, that it's going to be a quantum computer, quantally entangled, uh, that gives rise to anything that we would actually say, yep, yeah, that's as conscious as we are. So you, when, when, I, when I started off by asking you about an AGI, you kind of looped consciousness in. Yeah. To be clear, those are two very different things, right? An AGI is something that is intelligent and can do a list of tasks a human could do 
a consciousness, it may have nothing, maybe not intelligent at all. It may just, but it's, it's a feeling. It's an inner feeling. But you see, you, this is again, think, we, yeah, yeah, but it's a conflation of terms, right? Intelligence until Gary Kasparov was beaten at chess. And uh, intelligence was not just the ability to really rapidly crunch numbers, which is all, I'm sorry, there, no matter what algorithm you put into a, quant, into a computer, a computer is still a Turing machine. It can add a symbol, it can subtract a symbol, it can move left, it can move right. There's no computer that isn't a Turing machine. The general applicability of a Turing machine to simulating a thing that we call intelligence isn't in fact what the man on the street or the woman on the street means by intelligence. So when we start to say, well, we've got an artificially intelligent algorithm for picking stocks. Oh, well, if it picks stocks, which, which uh, tie should I wear today? Any intelligent person would tell you, don't wear the brown tie with the blue suit. The stock picking algorithm has no way to crunch that. It is not intelligent. It's just math. It's just math. And so when we take a word like intelligence and, and either because it gets us a better stock option, right? When we say our company's going public, we're in AI, not in rapid number crunching. Our stock market valuation is way higher. It isn't intelligence as you and I understand it at all. Full stop, not one whit. Where did you come down on the uploading your consciousness uh, possibility? <clears throat> So I actually have a degree in broadcasting and I can with absolutely perfect fidelity, go find your favorite symphony orchestra performing Beethoven's fifth, let's say, and give you an absolutely perfect copy of that without me personally being able to hold the tune. I'm tone deaf without me personally uh, having the single slightest insight into musical genius. Nonetheless, technically, I can reproduce musical genius to whatever bit rate of fidelity you require, if it's a digital recording, or imperfect analog uh, recording, uh, if you give me the proper equipment, equipment that already is well available. Given that analogy, we don't have to understand consciousness. All we have to do is vacuum up everything that is between our ears and find analog or digital ways to, uh, to reproduce it on another substrate. I think fundamentally there is no barrier to doing that. Whether we're anywhere near that level of fidelity in uh, recording the data or the patterns or whatever it is that is the, uh, the domain of consciousness within our own biological substrate. We may be years away from that, but we're not centuries away from that. It's something we will have the ability to record uh, and simulate uh, and duplicate this century, absolutely. So in terms of uploading consciousness, again, we play a slippery slope word with language. In terms of making an exact duplicate of my consciousness on another substrate, Absolutely. It'll be done. It'll be done this century. No question in my mind. Is it the same person? That's where we play these games with words. Uploading consciousness. Well, you know what? I have never once uploaded uh, a picture of myself to Facebook. Never once. The picture's still on my hard drive. I've copied it uh, and sent it to Facebook servers too. There's another version of that picture. And you know what? You upload a high resolution picture to Facebook, put it up as your profile photo. Facebook compresses it and reduces the resolution for their purposes at their end. So did they really get it? They don't have the original. It's not the same picture. But at first blush, it looks like I have uploaded something to the vast hive that is uh, Facebook, have done nothing of the sort. I have duplicated data at a different location. One of the themes that you write about is um, human life extension. What, mm -hmm. is, what do you think are the possibilities there? Can, is mortality a problem that we can solve and, and whatnot? Yeah, this is uh, very interesting. Again, I'm working on this TV project. And this is one of our themes. And yes, I think absolutely. I do not think that there's any biological um, 
determinism that says all life forms have to die at a certain point. Uh, it seems an eminently tractable problem. Remember, it was only the 1950s uh, that we figured out uh, the you know that um, uh, we figured out the double helix nature of DNA. Rosalind uh, Franklin, uh, uh, Francis Crick, and James Watson figured it out, uh, and we have it now. That's that's a blip, right? We've had a basic understanding of the structure of the genetic molecule and the genetic code and only beginning to under, and we, every time we think we've solved it, ah, we've got it. We, we, we now understand that this particular uh, codon quote uh, uh, codes for that particular amino acid. Oh, but then we forgot all about epigenetics. We thought in our uh, hubris, and uh, arrogance, oh, it's all junk DNA. We don't have to, oh, well, actually, there's these regulatory things that turn it on and off as it's required. So we're still quite some significant difference, distance away from totally solving why it is we age, uh, arresting that first, and conceivably reversing that second. But is it an intractable problem? Is it unsolvable by its nature? Absolutely not. Of course, we will have, again, this century, radical life prolongation, effective practical immortality barring uh, grotesque bodily accident. Um, absolutely, without question. And when, when I don't I, think it's coming as fast as my friend Aubrey de Grey thinks it's fasting. You know, Aubrey, uh, actually, uh, I just sent him a birthday wish on, on Facebook. Turns out he's younger than me. He looks a fair bit older. Uh, his partner smokes. And she says, I don't have to worry about it because we're going to solve that before the cancer is going to become an issue. I lost my younger brother to lung cancer. And my whole life, people have been saying, you know, cancer, we'll have that solved 20 years. And that in 20 years, and it's always been 20 years down the road. So I don't think, I, I honestly think I'm at, uh, uh, you and I probably, we're, we're about the same age, I imagine, are at uh, a juncture here. We're either part of the last generation to live a normal kind of biblical three score and 10, you know, plus or minus uh, a decade or two lifespan, or we're the first generation that's going to live a radically prolonged lifespan. And uh, who knows which side of that divide you and I happen to be on. But I think there are people alive already, uh, children born, uh, you know, in the early uh, certainly in the second decade and possibly the first of this century who absolutely will live to see not just the next century, the 22nd, but some will live to see the, the one beyond that Kirk's 23rd century. So putting all that together, um, what do you think is in store? Uh, let me start with the specific question. Are you worried about as our computers get better, we get better at crunching numbers quickly, as you say, uh, are you among the camp that worries that automation is going to create kind of a, 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 a an epic-sized social problem in the U.S. or in the world because it eliminates too many jobs too quickly? Yes. Uh, you know, my uh, uh, everybody is the crucible of their upbringing, and I think it's always important to uh, interrogate where you came from. I mentioned my father took me to 2001. Well, he took a day off uh, or had some time off from his job, which was a uh, professor of economics at the University of Toronto, so that we could go to a movie. So I come from a background. My mother was a statistician, my father uh, an economist. I come from a background uh, of understanding the science of scarcity and understanding, uh, you know, labor in the marketplace and uh, capitalism. It's in my DNA and it's in the, uh, the environment I grew up in. I had to do a pie chart to get my allowance as a kid. You know, here's your scarce resource, your 75 cents. Uh, you want a dollar, that, uh, a raise to a dollar? Show me a pie chart of where you're spending your money now and how you might usefully spend the additional amount, right? That's the economy of scarcity. That's the economy of, uh, of uh, jobs uh, and careers. My father set out to get his career. You know, he did his PhD at uh, University of Chicago, and uh, you go through assistant professor, associate professor, professor, now professor emeritus at 92 years old. There's a path. All of that has been disrupted by automation. Uh, and uh, there's absolutely no question it's already upon us in huge parts of, um, of uh, the environment, the, the uh, ecosystem that we live in. And not just in terms of auto uh, 
automotive line workers, which of course were the first big industrial robots were on automobile assembly lines. But, you know, I have friends who are librarians who are trying to justify why their jobs should still exist in a world where they've been disintermediated, where the whole world's knowledge, way more than any physical library ever contained, is at my fingertips the moment I sit down in front of my computer. They're being automated out of a job and not replaced by a robot worker, but they are certainly being replaced by the bounty that computers have made possible. So yeah, absolutely, we're gonna face a seismic shift. And whether we survive it or not uh, is uh, a very, very interesting sociological question and one I'm hugely interested in, both as an engaged human being and definitely as a science fiction writer. What do you mean survive it? So social, survive it recognizably with the culture and society and individual nation states uh, that uh, uh, have defined, let's say, the uh, post-World War II peaceful world order. Um, We already see, you know, you look back at uh, why Great Britain has chosen to step out of the European Union. European Union, one can argue all kinds of things about it, but one of the things that basically said, man, that was really dumb. World War One, uh, World War Two, that was even worse. All of us guys who live within spitting distance of each other fighting, and now we've got atomic weapons. Let's not do that anymore. In fact, let's knock down the borders and let's just get along. And then, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened, oh, Great Britain, and you see the far-right parties say, well, immigration is stealing our jobs. Well, no. You know, immigration uh, is a fact of life in an open world where people travel. Um, And I happen to be, in fact, just parenthetically, I'm a member of the Order of Canada, Canada's highest civilian honor. One of the perks that comes with that is I'm empowered to and take great pride in administering the oath of Canadian citizenship at Canadian uh, citizenship ceremonies. Uh, I'm very much pro-immigration. Immigrants are not what's causing jobs to disappear, but it's way easier to point to that guy who looks a bit different or talks a bit different than you do and say he's the cause and not that the whole economic sector that you used to work in is being obviated out of existence, whether it was factory workers or whether it was stock market traders. The fact is that uh, the AIG and uh, all of that, AGI, that we've been talking about here uh, is disappearing those jobs, is making those jobs cease to exist. And we're looking around now and seeing a great deal of social unrest, trying to find another person to blame for that. So what do you think? Like, what do you, so I guess implicit in what you're saying is, yes, technology is going to dislocate people from their employment, but, but what about the corollary of that, that it, that it will or won't create new jobs at, at the same essential rate? So clearly it has not created new jobs at the same essential rate. Um, and clearly the sad truth is that not everybody uh, can do the new jobs. We used to have pretty full employment no matter where you fell sort of in your, you know, as Mr. Spock famously said, as with all living things, each according to his gifts. Now it's a reality that there is a whole bunch of people who did blue collar labor because that was all that was available to them. And of course, as uh, you know, uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and others have famously said, I'm not particularly fascinated by Einstein's brain per se. I'm mortified by the fact that there were a million Einsteins Uh, in Africa or the poorest parts of the United States or wherever who never got to give the world what the benefits of their great brain could have because economic circumstances didn't exist for them to do that in. Uh, What jobs are going to appear that aren't going to be obviated out of existence? I was actually reading an interesting article uh, and talking at a pub last night with a gentleman who was an archaeologist. An article I read quite recently, top 10 jobs that aren't soon going to be automated out of existence. An archaeologist was one of them. Why? One, there's no particular economic incentive. In fact, archaeologists these days tend to be an impediment to economic growth. That is, they're the guys who show up when there's a ground has been broken for a new skyscraper and say, hang on a minute, indigenous Canadian or Native American remains here. You got to slow down until we collect this stuff, right? So no, no business is saying, oh my God, if only archaeologists were even better 
at finding things that would stop us from our economic expansion. And it has such a broadly based skill set. You have to be able to identify uh, completely unique potsherds. Uh, each one is different from another, not something that easily fits a pattern like a defective shoe going down an assembly line. Oh, not the num right number of eyelets on that shoe. Reject it. So will we come up with job after job after job that Moore's Law hopscotching ahead of us isn't going to obviate out of existence ad infinitum no we're not going to do it even for the next 20 years there will be massive 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 unemployment that's a game changer a societal shift and you know the reality is why is it i mentioned world war one world why do all these countries habitually uh, and going right back to tribal culture habitually make war on a routine basis because unoccupied young men and it's mostly men who create are the problem have always been a detriment to society and so we ship them off to war to get rid of the surplus in the united states they just lowered the bar on uh, drug possession rules to define an ability to get the largest incarcerated population of people who otherwise might have just been up to general mischief, not any seismic threat, just general mischief. And societies have always had a problem dealing with surplus young men. Now we have surplus young men, surplus young women, surplus old men, surplus old women, surplus everybody. And there's no way in hell, and you must know this if you just stop and think about it, no way in hell that we're going to generate satisfactory jobs for the panoply that is humanity out of ever accelerating uh, automation. It can't possibly be true. Let's take a minute and, and go a little deeper in that. Um, you say it with such finality and such conviction, but but you have to start off by saying there is not among people kind of in that world, there isn't universal consensus on that question. Oh, for um, sure. My job is not to, uh, to uh, say, here's what the consensus is. My job as a prognosticator right. is to say, look, here is after decades of thinking about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not to uh, but, burnish but was, it here, but, was, you, you know, Marvin Minsky saying, uh -huh. look, this guy is worth listening to. So, no, there right. isn't universal consensus. But you ask the guy who's running uh, you ask the guy who's who got, okay, uh, you know, I had a factory job. I don't have that anymore, but I drive for Uber. Yeah, well, if five years from now, Uber will have no drivers. It'll, Uber is at the cutting edge of automating cars. Mm -hmm. So after you mm -hmm. lost your factory job, and then, okay, well, I could drive a car. What's the next one? It's going to be some high-level diagnostician of arcane psychiatric disorders. That ain't the career path. The jobs that are automated out of existence are going to be automated out of existence in a serial fashion. The one that if your skill set was fairly low, a factory worker, that you could hopscotch into a fairly low one driving a car. You tell me what the next fairly low skill set job that magically is going to appear that's going to be cheaper and easier for corporations to deploy to human beings. It ain't counter help at McDonald's, that's disappearing. It ain't cash registers uh, at uh, grocery stores, that's disappearing. It ain't bank teller, that already disappeared. It ain't well, teaching well, fundamental let's, primary let's, let's school, all down. of that. So you give me an example of why the consensus, okay. that, that there isn't consensus of why, no, no, here, you show me. Don't tell me that there are people who disagree with me. Tell me how their plot and plan for well, this actually makes any sense that bears any scrutiny. Let's, let's do that. <clears throat> um, because my, my only observation was not that you had an opinion, but that it was bereft of the word maybe. Um, and so, like you just said, ATM bank tellers. Um, the fact of the matter is, a fact on the ground, is that the number of bank tellers we have today is higher than uh, pre-ATM days. And the economics that happened, actually, were that by making ATMs, you lowered the cost of building new bank branches. And so what banks did is they just put lots more branches everywhere, and each of those needed some number of tellers. So, so walk into your bank. Here's an interesting question for you. And mm -hmm. uh, Walk into your bank. I did this recently, and uh, the person I was with was astonished 
because every single bank teller was a man and he hadn't been into a bank for a while and they used to all be women. Now, there's no fundamental difference between the skill set of men and women, but there is a reality that uh, in the glass ceiling of the finance sector, and you can not dispute that it exists, that uh, higher level jobs were always held by men and lower level jobs were held by women. And the reality is what you call a bank teller is now a guy who doesn't count out tens and twenties. He is a guy who provides much higher level financial services. And it's not that we upgraded the skill set of the displaced. We didn't turn all of those counter help people in McDonald's into cordon bleu chefs either. We simply obviated them out of existence. And the niches, the interstices in the economy that do exist, that supplement or replace the automation are not comparably low-level jobs. You do not fill a bank with tellers who are doing routine, counting out of money, taking a check and moving it over to the, the vault. That is not the function. And they don't even call them tellers anymore. They call them personal financial advisors or whatever. So it, it, again, your, uh, your example simply doesn't bear scrutiny. It doesn't bear scrutiny so that we are taking low-level right. jobs and, oh, guess what? Now we have, show me the automotive plant that suddenly right. has thousands and thousands of more people working on the assembly line because that particular job over there spraying the final coat of paint was more uh, uh, done, to, done to finer tolerance by a machine. But, oh, my God, well, let's move. You know, No, that's not happening. So well, I think it, it, you're, it, it's obfuscation to say that, oh, look, we now have many more people in employed in bank telling. Uh, this is the whole problem that we've been talking about here. Let's take terminology and redefine it as we go along to avoid mm -hmm. facing the harsh reality. We have automated telling machines because we don't have human telling individuals anymore. So the, 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 the challenge with your argument, though, is, it, is, it, is it's kind of an old one that has been used for centuries. And each time it's used, it's it's due to a lack of imagination. It's, it's basically my saying, business, I, Bucko, is imagination. I have no right. lack thereof. Believe no, I wasn't. I wasn't I saying have, seriously, and it hasn't been used for generations. Name a single industrial revolution argument that invoked Moore's law. Name one. Name one that said uh, well, the they, invention of the loom will hmm. outpace the invention. Human no. inventiveness was right. always the constraint. And we now do not have human inventiveness as the constraint. Artificial intelligence, whether you define it your way or my way, is something that was not invoked for centuries. We wouldn't be having this conversation mm -hmm. via Skype or whatever like, uh, Zoom we're using here. Uh, these are game changers that were not predicted by anybody but science fiction writers. You can go back and look at Jules Verne and his novel that he couldn't get published in his lifetime, Paris in the 20th. Uh, uh, century uh, that is incredibly prophetic about television and so forth, and nobody believed it. Me and my colleagues are the ones that give rise to not just me, but uh, again, that example. Uh, lately, I'm inspired by um, uh, Robert J. Sawyer, says Marvin Minsky. Lately, I'm inspired by science fiction. I would say belatedly much of the business world is now finally looking and taking seriously science fiction. I go and give talks worldwide. I was giving one at Guarantee Bank, the second largest bank in Istanbul a while ago about inculcating the science fiction extrapolative and imaginative mindset in business thinkers. Because no, this argument as we're framing it today has not been invoked for centuries to, uh, and, and to pretend that the advent of the loom or the uh, printing press somehow gave rise to people saying the seismic shift that's coming from artificial intelligence, we dealt with that with centuries ago and blah, 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 it's the same old thing, is to have absolute blinders on, my friend. And you right. know it well. You wouldn't well, be doing a podcast about mm -hmm. artificial intelligence if you thought, here we are at podcast loom version 45.2, we're going to have the loom argument about weaving again <laughs> now, now, for the umpteenth now, time. Right. You know the, the, the landscape is uh -huh. fundamentally qualitatively different today. So 
it's a little disingenuous. I never mentioned the loom. I think the analogy. You, no, you said for centuries. Right, well, right, well, let me, let, let, let's not be let, disingenuous. Let what is your specific example I will of give you the two. debate related to the automation out of existence mm -hmm. without the replacement of the workers with comparable skill set <clears throat> jobs from centuries ago? Uh -huh. I won't okay. put an example in your mouth. You put one on the table. I will put two on the table. The first is. Uh, the electrification of industry. It happened with lightning speed. It, um, it was pervasive. It, it eliminated enormous numbers of jobs. And people at, at that point said, what are we going to do with these people? I'll give you a second one, which was the, and it took 20 years for the U.S. to go from generating 5% of its power with coal to 80%. So in 20 years, we, we, we started artificially generating a power. The third one I'd like to give you is the mechanization of industry. It happened so fast and it replaced all of the millions and millions and millions of draft animals that had been used in the past. Um, all well, three okay, of those let's take that are, one there. All right, so what are the draft animals in our economy today? They well, are only life forms in our economy that can be replaced. The draft animals replaced by machines and humans that operated them. Now we've eliminated draft animals. So the only biology in our economy is homo sapiens. We are eliminating the homo sapiens. You're not gonna find new jobs for the homo sapiens any more than except maybe at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue where we found a job for a jackass. Are you going to find a place to put a draft animal on the payroll today? And you're not going to find a place to put a homo sapiens, so, the last biology in the equation, on the payroll tomorrow, except in a vanishingly few uh, economic niches. So the challenge with that view is that in the history of this country, unemployment's been between 4 and 9% the entire time, with the exception of the Depression. 4 and 9%. Now, this During country, that, meaning the United States of America, which is not where I am. But yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, in, in the United States of America, 4 to 9%, uh, with the exception of the Depression. During that time, of course, you had an incredible economic upheaval, say from 1790 to 1910 or something like that. Never, never moved. 4 to 9%. Meanwhile, after World War II, you started adding a million new people out of the blue to the workforce. So you had a million women a year come into the workforce year after year for 40 years. So you had 40 million new people mm -hmm. between 45 and 85 come into the workplace. Never, never bumped. So what it suggests is that jobs are not these, these things that kind of magically appear as we go through time. And it's like, oh, there's a job. Oh, oh that's an unskilled one. Great. Or, oh, there's a job. Oh, no. Well, but, but it wait a minute. For the women entering the workforce, uh, and I speak as the, the son of a woman who was a child prodigy, who was the only woman in her economics class at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, who taught at a prestigious university. I have no doubt that there were occasional high-level jobs, but the, the jobs that were created, that women came in and filled and are still butting against the glass ceiling up, were low-level jobs. It was, so, oh my God, we suddenly need thousands of new computer programmers. No, we've created a niche that no longer exists for key punch operators, as an example, or for telephone operators, as an example, or for bank tellers, as an example. And those jobs, to a person, have been obviated out of existence or will be uh, in the next decade or two. So, so, yes, I, I, I mean, you make an interesting metric about the size of unemployment. But remember, too, that the, the unemployment figure is, uh, is a slippery slope when you say the number of people actively looking for employment. Now, you ask how many people have just given up now, on any hope of being employed <clears throat> meaningfully, respectfully, in dignity again, and that number has gone up as a straight line graph through no, the, uh, no, I, the I, I automation revolution. What, what, if you're talking about workforce utilization or the percentage of people who have gainful employment, there, there has been a dip over, over the last... Yes. Say, since and, wait, 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 wait. wait. Mm -hmm. um, it's been repeatedly dissected by any number of people, and it seems there's three things going on in it. One is baby boomers are retiring, and you know, they're this, this lump that passes through the economy, so you get that. And then there's seasonality baked into that number. And they think the amount that are people who have quote, given up is about one quarter of 1%. So sure, one in 400. So what I would say is that 
in 95, 96, 97, we had the internet come along, right? Let's say 97, it's you know, the, the consumer internet. And if you look between 97 and the last 20 years at the literal trillions, not an exaggeration, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars of wealth that it created, uh, you get your Googles, you get your Ebays, you get your Amazons, you get your this trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth. Um, Nobody would have seen that in 1997. Nobody says, oh, yes, the connecting of various computers together through um, TCP IP and allowing them to communicate with hypertext is going to create trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars worth of jobs. And yet, it, a value and therefore jobs. And yet it did. Unemployment still between 4 and 9%, never budgets. And, and so it, it, it suggests that jobs are not magically coming out of the air. That what happens is you take any person of any skill level, they can take anything, and apply some amount of work to it and some amount of, um, of intellectual property to it and make something worth more. And the value that, 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 that they added, that's known as a wage. And whatever they can add to that, whatever they can meaningfully add to it, that just created a job. Ah, oh, just made a job. It doesn't matter whether it's a low skill person or a high school person or what have you. And, and that's why people maintain the unemployment rate never moves because uh, people, there's an infinite amount of jobs. They exist kind of in the air. Just go outside tomorrow and knock on somebody's door and offer to do something for money and you just made a job. And so the idea... So go outside and offer to what and make a job? Because there are a ton of things that I used to pay people to do that I don't anymore. What do you my do Roomba, with that money My now? Roomba cleans mm -hmm. my, my floor instead of a cleaning lady as a hypothetical but, example. But don't right? you spend that money now on something else, which ergo is a job. Yeah, like, spending money is a job. With spending money, definitely, yes, creates employment. Well, uh, that's a very interesting discussion that we could have here. Because certainly I used to have to spend money if I wanted something. Now, if I want to watch, as we saw this past week as we record this, the new season of Orange is a New Black before the intellectual property creators want to deploy it to me and collect money for it, oh, <laughs> guess what? It's been pirated and it's online for free. Mm -hmm. If I want to read, or if somebody listening to this wants to read any of my 23 novels, they could go and buy the ebook edition. Yeah, that's true. There's an enormous amount of people who are also pirating them and pirating the audiobooks. So the whole of the, this notion that somehow technology has made sure that we buy things with our money, I think a lot of people would take economic exception with that. In fact, well, technology has made sure that there are now ways in which you can steal without, and it comes back to the mm -hmm. discussion we're having of AI, oh, I now have a copy, you still have the original, in what possible meaningful way have I stolen from you? So well, we actually have game changers that I think you're alighting over. But setting aside that, okay, obviously we disagree on this point. Fine, let's touch base in 50 years if either of us still has a job and discuss it. Uh, yes, I mean, I would just say the savings Because the easy thing, I got to say the easy thing is to always say there's no consensus. Then you don't have to go out on a limb and nobody can ever come back to you and say you're wrong. What we do in politics these days is we don't want people to change their ideas, sadly. We say, 40 years ago, you said so-and-so. You must still hold that view. No, a science fiction writer is like a scientist. We are open all the time to new information and new data, and we're constantly advising, revising our worldview. So you can look at uh, the treatment of artificial intelligence, our subject matter today from my first novel in 1990 to uh, uh, the most recent one I treated the, the topic in, which would be Wonder that came out in 2011. Uh, and there's definitely an evolution of thought there. But it's a mugs game to say, eh, there's no consensus, I'm not going to make a prediction. And it actually is a job, my friend, and one that turns out to be fairly lucrative, at least in my case, to make a prediction, to look at the data and say, you know, I synthesize it, look at it this way, and here's where I think it's going. And if you want to obviate that job out of existence by saying, yeah, but other people disagree with you, I suppose that's your privilege in this particular economic paradigm. Well, uh, thank you very much. But tell us what you're working on in closing. <laughs> I am working. It's interesting because we, we've talked a lot about AI, but I'm really AI and the relationship between us and AI is uh, uh, a subset in some ways of transhumanism in that you can look at uh, artificial intelligence as a separate thing. 
But re the reality is that we're going to find way more effective ways to merge ourselves and artificial intelligence than looking in through the five-inch glass window on your smartphone, right? So what I'm working on is actually developing a TV series on a transhumanist theme. And one of the key things we're looking at is uh, really that fundamental question of how much of your biology, one of the things we've talked about here, you can give up. Uh, and still retain your fundamental humanity. Uh, and I don't want to get into too much specifics about that, but I think that is, uh, you know, really comes thematically right back to what we've been talking about here and what Alan Turing was getting at with the Turing test. A hundred years from now, have I uploaded my consciousness? Have I uh, so infused my body with nanotechnology? Uh, am I so constantly... Um, plugged into a greater electronic global brain? Am I still homo sapiens sapiens? I don't know, but I hope I'll have that double dose of wisdom that goes with sapiens sapiens uh, by that time. And that's what I'm working on, is really exploring the human machine proportionality that still results in individuality and human dignity. And I'm doing it in a, a science fiction television project that I currently have a development contract for. I'm awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for it being It was a on the spirited show. discussion. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Because one of the things that will never be obviated out of existence, I hope, my friend, is uh, spirited and polite disagreement between human beings. I think that is, uh, if there's something we've come nowhere close to emulating on an artificial platform, it's that. And if there's any reason that AIs will keep us around. I've often said it's because of our unpredictability, our spontaneity, our creativity, and our good sense of humor. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.